Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Art Prize is once again underway. Re-elect Jesus, yeah. Art Prize 2014. <laughs> it, it's one of the highest cash prizes in the art world from one of its least respected competitions. So get on board, <laughs> folks. Uh, you can find us online at doubtcast.org or at freethoughtblogs.com slash doubts. And you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio and on publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Sup. And Justin Schieber. Holla, holla. Uh, Dr. Professor Luke Galen is, I, I think, just being lazy. Luke <laughs> just emailed us yesterday. It was like, um, we've been recording a lot lately. I'm not coming in. <laughs> It's actually later than usual recording, yeah. so he could have slept in. But eh, I like that we've gotten to the point years later where we don't even have to make excuses anymore. Yeah, just like, <laughs> true. you know what? I don't want to go. Not coming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what we do have in today's show is an interview with the one and only Greta Christina. Woohoo! Promising for a while now. We'll finally get to that. We've got a Stranger Than Fiction, the second part of our polyatheism series on the Celtic hero Cuhulin, and more. But first, um, let's talk about uh, a young man and uh, his inappropriate relationship with a statue of Jesus. I've always felt that I had a deep relationship with Jesus when I was young, but nothing compared to this. this nice. You get a little choked up thinking yeah. about it, don't you? <laughs> In Bedford County, Pennsylvania... There's a Christian organization there, uh, Love in the Name of Christ, and they have a statue of Jesus kneeling in prayer mm. with his head looking like up towards the Garden sky. Garden of Gethsemane, maybe. Yeah. You know. Wait, who is Jesus praying to again? Him himself. himself. Okay. Yeah. Just yeah. wanted to make that clear. Yep. It's uh, you know, it's painted, so it's rather uh, lifelike. Looks like a, a, a Jesus on his knees. It's kind of kitschy. To Very be honest, much so. But, pretty, uh, pretty kitschy. But it's it's hard to do a statue of Jesus and not be kitschy. Yeah. So so some 14-year-old boy decided to approach the statue and um, pose himself in a manner that uh, looked like he was receiving oral pleasure from the Lord. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The statue is really the perfect height. Yeah. I mean, it's just... I'm, you walk up to the statue and that's... It looks really ripe for that yeah, yeah. Yes, sort of, course. of thing. I'm surprised people haven't tried it sooner. Right. Well, and I'm sure they have. Is but, that a yeah. challenge? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't recommend it now. No. Yeah, well, apparently uh, he posted these pictures on Facebook, probably for nobody else other than his friends, but his profile say, was public. There's probably ten people who saw it. Yeah, and uh, apparently Pennsylvania still has a blasphemy law on the books mm. against the, quote, desecration, theft, or sale of a venerated object. The law defines desecration as defacing, damaging, polluting, or otherwise physically mistreating in a way that the actor knows will outrage the sensibilities 
of those who mm. uh, and, and that would be the, yeah. the the final clause there would be the thing that was the issue because he didn't damage the well statue yeah that was the all. point wait wait he, so so someone forcing uh, our savior to uh, give them fellatio yeah. would be would incite outrage you think I'm looking at the statue and he's smiling. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Jesus was damaged by this at all. No, no. The kid has his shirt off. That makes me feel like there was some, like, I don't know, there was something else going there's, on. There's too. foreplay there. Yeah. This, is not, this is not just a this like, is, we're back coming. alley. This is actual romance. This is love. Guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, he has his pants on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is not child. It's no. not child pornography no, 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 or no. anything. No. He didn't actually vandalize this. And as right. some people have pointed out, he would have faced less pressure from the law. If he would have just stole the thing or broke the head off That's or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He did that and they decided to prosecute him under it. As far as I understand, I don't think the church actually initiated the legal action against him. It was the district attorney. This wasn't the church saying, um, how dare you do this horrible route? I think the, or- the boy publicly apologized to, to Love and Jesus or whatever they're called. Um, By the way, I mean, could you have picked a better name for a group that had this particular statue out front? I mean, we got that. I do like how all the articles referred to this as a mock blowjob, as if, as if you could get head from a statue. Don't worry, he's not really getting a blowjob. If it was a real blowjob, yeah. Well, presumably that, that would have been more appropriate. That'd be some Doctor Who kind of shit. <laughs> the Lord coming it. in the clouds. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's a free crucifixion, Jesus. Otherwise, he could get a, a handy J through stigmata, which would really <laughs> upset people. J. I wow. think that would. Uh, well, I think on the Facebooks they were saying that we're not crude enough with our show. I, I, I think we're <laughs> delivering. Up this delivering time. right this out morning. the gate. Yeah. No shame yeah. today. And uh, this is a great one to have before the Greta Christina interview, too. Oh, Greta <laughs> would appreciate this. Yeah. She would love every yes, minute, I'm sure. I just feel bad if she's never listened to the show before. <laughs> yeah, if she thinks this is the standards that we try to <laughs> reach all Usually the time. We save this kind of stuff till the end of the show. Yeah. So you're lucky this time. Well, so he was facing, this young man was facing up to two years. 14-year-old yeah. kid. Now, I don't think anybody thought the judge was going to go that far. Mm-hmm. Still, the, what he got was, I think, pretty harsh. He got a uh, six-month probation period, 350 hours of community service. Oh, that's wow. A, that's a fairly healthy community service. He must obey a curfew at, at 10 p.m. Which is later than I would give my 14-year-old. So, okay, that's not so bad. (laughs) Yeah, see, the father in the group is being like, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Keep Mm -hmm. him at home after. Well, I I think that's rather oppressive. And he's going to be subjected to random drug tests the entire time for alcohol. It's just humiliating and expensive. This was not a drug-related offense. That's really strange that they would have a drug test. That doesn't make any sense to me. Because Puritans, that's what it comes down to. (laughs) Because Puritans. Yeah. District Attorney Bill Higgins was you know, responsible for really pushing this through. Uh, the district attorney actually argued that the juvenile's actions infringed upon the rights of the Christian group to practice their faith. How? Uh, how did that infringe upon I them? I am not 
can't even make the connection in my mind. Did he shove people out of the way who were trying to pray at the statue? Or at like the time? maybe they all wanted to hug Jesus and he was in the way? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, what? Maybe they're going to have to buy a new Jesus statue because it's just going to be traumatic or something yeah. for them. I don't know, but mm-hmm. it's rather ridiculous. And uh, Higgins, of course, has gotten a lot of flack publicly for pursuing this. <laughs> And uh, he, he's he been defending himself rather obnoxiously. Higgins said, this troubled young man offended the sensibility. And first of all, he's not troubled. He's a freaking 14-year-old. Right. You Who know, amongst us would not have done the same thing yeah. to that self-same <laughs> I would have. I mean. I would have almost certainly. Yeah. I, yeah I've been, Maybe not at that age. No, no, of course I didn't just because I was I would have been hugging. I didn't the, know what the, the statue I didn't know what that time. did at that time, so I I wouldn't have known what to do. But I did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not. I don't think he's a troubled man. But anyways, this troubled young man offended the sensibilities and morals of our all caps our community. Mm. His actions constitute a violation of the law, and he will be prosecuted accordingly. If that tends to upset the anti-Christian band school prayer war on Christmas opposed what? display of the Ten Commandments crowd, oh, I make no apologies. Oh, man. Yeah, so clearly this is a personal mission of this uh, gentleman to humiliate this Luckily, youngster. Luckily, he's an upstanding pillar of the community and posts only righteous things on his social media, Well, right, right. yeah, that's and yeah. that's the thing, too. I mean, it's he shouldn't have to be prosecuted for this stuff either, either. No. but this, this guy posts uh, links to, like, porn stars on Howard Stern talking about how they drop big loads confessed to having affairs and is at the GOP office in the area. He was accused of rape at one point, but those charges were dismissed. Uh, But still, this is a guy who does not have a a pure, unsullied record himself. No, he is not a moral pillar of that community from from the sound of it, but is uh, wasting money and wasting this this young boy's time. uh, Didn't the receiver of this faux blowjob once say something about uh, not criticizing the uh, speck in one person's eye mm. while ignoring the plank in <laughs> your own. Plank so, in yes. your own. And there was something about letting the little children come unto me. But <laughs> Jesus, I think a different issue. But uh, let's turn- tissue, different <laughs> tissue. Sorry. <laughs> This is the dirtiest thing we've ever had on this show. Uh, but right. uh, let's turn now from a, a story where a mouth caused some trouble uh, to an ass, which is... Uh, we go okay from ass to, to mouth. Well, you don't do that. No. We're going no. in the other direction now. Okay. And let's talk about uh, yeah. one of our favorite, Antonin Scalia, the <sighs> Supreme Court justice who just won't quit. Yep. But uh, he had some words to say about people who believe that um, that secularism is respected as much by the Constitution as religion is. He called that idea, quote, absurd. Yeah, and a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, he was speaking to uh, Colorado Christian University. And in his speech, uh, he said, uh, 
I'm, I'm just going to start reading Scalia quotes. Okay. I want yes. people to hear the whole thing. Absolutely. Uh, I think the main fight is to dissuade Americans from what the secularists are trying to persuade them to be true, that the separation of church and state means that the government cannot favor religion over non-religion. He goes on. And on. And on. <laughs> yeah, he does. He says, we do God honor in our Pledge of Allegiance, in our public ceremonies. There's nothing wrong with that. It is in the best of American traditions, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. I think we have to fight the tendency of the secularists to impose it on all of us through the Constitution. He, he did make one point where I will agree with him, though, right? He did say, quote, No principle of democracy is more fundamental than what has become known as the separation of church and state. End quote. And he warned that the religious preoccupation with government would, quote, destroy the church. So mm-hmm. he is he is kind of on our side in saying, you know, when the church uh, worries too much about having influence on government, it's going to hurt the church. And I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with the rest of what he has to say. But. Yeah. Well, and he obviously – he does not view this uh, separation to be as strict as no. a lot of us would want it to be, and uh, arguably some of the founders wanted it to be. And, and I mean that's the thing. If we're looking to if we're looking to history as a precedent, the founders, which is Scalia's method of interpretation, right? As we've pointed out many times on the show, the founders were just not of one mind on this matter. Right. It's it's impossible to say, well, what was the original intent of the framers of the Constitution because they had different ideas. Mm-hmm. So who are you going to choose? Mentioning the court's recent decisions regarding church and state, he said, our, our latest take on the subject, which is quite different from previous takes, is that the state must be neutral, not only between religions, but between religion and non-religion. That's just a lie. Where do you get the notion that this is all unconstitutional? Uh, you can only believe that if you believe in a morphing constitution. Oh, yeah. You mean a living, breathing document? Yes, it's it's a document that changes. That's why there are amendments. That's why we have all of the the things in place to make it change. It is a morphing constitution. I've heard people point out before, if we want to take a really strict historical interpretation of the Constitution, right? Grand theft auto could be considered a capital crime and that wouldn't be, you know, that wouldn't be cruel or unusual punishment because at certain points in time, stealing horses was (laughs) an offense punishable by uh, murder. Um, So I think we ought to see that as a morphing document. I, you know, I'm sure there's there's legitimate issues of interpreting the law. Of course. Uh, Although not but, so much for Scalia. Um, here's his take on what his job yeah. is as a Supreme Court justice. Okay, He says that um, it's basically stress-free the way he does it because, as the article says, he believes the founder's original intent can always be determined and then applied to any case. Quote, If I had the other view of the Constitution, that it was an empty bottle which was to be filled by my court and it was my responsibility to decide all these massive ethical questions, if they were all my call, I couldn't sleep at night. Some of my colleagues have have said, oh, we agonize a lot. I don't agonize at all. I look at the text. I look at the history of the text. That's the answer. It's not my call. So, that's I a mean, frightening. That's comment. the Ken Ham. So I have this book here. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, we. Well, and he's mocking people who fret over the ethical implications of their decisions. That's, you know? That's frightening. And it's yeah. just, I mean, we know he's a strict constitutionalist, but this is, this is really putting it out there like, I, I don't even have to think about it. I just, what does the Constitution say? Okay, that's my decision, which is remarkable given many of the decisions he's had of late. Uh, He then later kind of laughs at a reporter's question about what kind of pressure does he feel he's under. He comments, so what can they do to me? I have life tenure. It's even better than academic tenure. Oh, Wow. <laughs> yeah, this is happening in the context of uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg being yeah. asked to recuse herself and Christians being very upset because she's not recusing herself from an abortion-related case because she's spoken about abortion. Recently. Yeah, yeah. Or they've said the same thing with gay marriage cases. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Ginsburg has performed a few, which are legal in yeah. some states, so and, why the hell not? And the California judge but, who um, decided on, on Prop 4, who also happened to be gay, well, he shouldn't have been able to talk about that. Scalia has had a number of cases where he has had actual, like, financial connections mm-hmm. to people. And has not recused And he himself. won't recuse himself. Yeah. So oh. the hypocrisy is just uh, amazing. Yeah, the Liberty Council is, has been asking Ruth Bader Ginsburg to recuse herself. They had this in their press statement. In casting a vote publicly before the case is ever heard, Justice Ginsburg has violated the judicial code of conduct. This was because she had made a comment at a public meeting that if the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals were to... Uh, strike down these gay marriage bans in Kentucky, Michigan, and Ohio, and Tennessee, then it would be very likely that the Supreme Court would would hear the case. Well, actually, that it would be less likely, I guess, because mm. if, the, if they were to uphold the bans, then that creates a conflict between the appellate rulings. And so Ginsburg was just saying, you know, there's going to be some urgency in picking up right. these cases because we'll have conflicting I, – I don't know what you call that, case law on the matter, yeah. which seems to me like a rather innocuous comment. It's not really – of course she has a viewpoint on this. Yes. But it doesn't seem to me like she's, she's legislating, yeah, no. casting a vote publicly before the case is even heard. Mm-hmm. But that's what the Liberty Council and uh, several of others of these Christian political action groups are saying. Mm-hmm. If anybody should be accused of deciding the case before it's even reached the bench, uh, Scalia's comments, mm-hmm. you know, simply dismissing this stuff as a lie and that he doesn't have to even worry or fret about this stuff. If if they were consistent, they would be asking Scalia to recuse himself too. But again, that ain't gonna happen. No. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It it's probably a good thing too that Scalia is on the bench because. Gosh darn it, white Christians are persecuted so much more than mm-hmm. anyone else. It's good that Scalia is there to defend them. That was the finding of a recent Pew Forum survey. Not that, that white Christians are persecuted more. No, that they perceive that they them themselves, that they believe right. themselves to be. Yes, it's the Pew Research Religion and Public Life Project The subtitle of the report was The Public Sees Religious Influence Waning. It was charting a number of opinions uh, regarding religion and public life. 
comparing the statistics from this year to an identical poll in 2010. And it is interesting. It, it seems that just across the board, people seem to want more religion in government than they did just four years ago. It's not a huge increase, but in certain demographics it is. Overall, for example, should churches express more political views? 49% of people saying that it should as opposed to 43% in 2010. So that's, that's a pretty – across the board, that's a pretty big increase. That's, well, that's a very high number either way. Yeah. But the fact yeah. that it's rising is is disturbing. We don't have to break down the figures here. I, I'm sure the audience can predict this. Obviously, the the Democrats are much less likely just across the board mm-hmm. to support religion mixing with politics. It the Republicans are definitely driving up the numbers, though you'd be surprised. There's not a huge difference. No, between not as the much as groups. there really ought to be. Yeah. Uh, other questions that were asked, do we have too much or too little religious expressions of religious faith by political leaders? And again, uh, the majority felt that there was too little talking about religion in politics. Oh, Yeah. It, you just can't I just find it, it anywhere. I mean, it's not like uh, you know Supreme Court justices are giving speeches at Christian 40, colleges regularly. Yeah. Forty-one percent said it was too little. Uh, only thirty percent too much. <laughs> so where's the other well, numbers? Twenty-three yeah. percent said just the right amount. <laughs> the Goldilocks zone of religious influence. I think you know I I, I could. Deal with a little less, maybe a little more, but I'm comfortable. This, this pretty baby bear right here. Yeah. It's just right. Our religious influence has been finely tuned. Yes. <laughs> um, one of the interesting things, this is still a minority position, but the, the question was, should churches be allowed to endorse candidates, mm. you know, or, or should they be endorsing political I candidates? I think a lot of people are saying yes to this without thinking about the actual implications. Yeah. Most people, most people say no, they shouldn't. Oh, uh, but good. the, uh, but it's interesting to see how much the yes, they should is growing. Mm. Uh, that jumped from 24 percent in uh, 2010 to 32 percent in 2014. So it's kind of a growing minority. Yeah. Might be signs of a movement in that direction. One of the only things that I guess went down was, do you want members of Congress to have strong religious beliefs? There's still a lot of people who think there should be, but the numbers dropped just slightly from 2014. Uh, 61% in 2010 to 59% in 2014. So, I mean, not, not a, yeah, I mean, the number is wow. high to begin with, but that one, and of course, uh, everyone trended wants in the members of Congress direction. to have strong religious beliefs that they share with the people who are responding to this poll. They don't want, yeah. they don't no, want be strong Muslim beliefs. <laughs> right. The thing that Americans are most agreed upon, apparently, is that they all agree that religion's influence is waning. 72% said that religion is losing its influence. Only 22% perceived religion as gaining influence. I guess the conflict is, is that a good thing right. or a and, bad thing? And, and that's the, I think and, that's the real issue here. Yeah, as a total, it was 12% think it's a good thing that religion is losing its influence. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the breakdown, that's almost all the nuns. Right. That's it's all the, the, yeah, the non-religious yeah. of 
many more uh, as much as high as 56 percent. But like if we're talking about white evangelicals, it's 77 percent, you know. Yeah. I wish they had a thing. different name for the nons because it doesn't really carry over well on, on audio. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Always sounds like we're talking about like Indian female, the, female The convent priests. is thoroughly yeah, disagreeing yeah. with this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we either have nuns or nons. Those so. pesky nuns. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, here's to the big statistic. Mm-hmm. Here's the whopper. It's a beauty. The question regarding perception of discrimination. Half of white evangelical Protestants say that evangelicals face a lot of discrimination. When the overall public, only 31% perceives you know, so uh, a third, Christians. Uh, roughly a third perceive white evangelical Christians as being persecuted. The survey points out, you know, this is always the case that the group you are a part of, Mm -hmm. you will perceive greater discrimination than the general public. That's always going to be true. But you can see pretty plainly in the charts, the evangelicals are extreme in their overprojection of, of out discrimination. Of touch with the reality. You know, yeah. the the closest the closest gap between overall public perception and just the group is African Americans and their perception of of discrimination, which I think is, you know, an accurate perception. <laughs> Well, uh, no, what, but the general hey, public does we not. We have a black president. There is no discrimination. <laughs> right. We are post-racial society. Anymore, right? But what I'm saying is there's yeah. that kind of level of disconnect. Uh, Christians being uh, perceiving themselves yeah. as discriminated. In fact, so 50% of evangelical, white evangelical Christians view this the, as the case. But what's funny is 45% of them would say that Muslims are discriminated against. Right. Only 36 would say that blacks are discriminated against. Only 32% would say Hispanics are discriminated That's against. So bizarre. Only 19% would say atheists are discriminated what? against. What about gays? So in other words, did, yeah, aside from gays, yeah. uh, they did agree. White evangelicals did view 53% oh, wow. that – they uh that they are uh because they're the ones doing it. Right. Because they're <laughs> the ones responsible. Like, yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty aware of that <laughs> since they're the source of the discrimination. See, although I, I I'm a little and bit They actually by think that. Jews are more discriminated against than Jews think they are too. <laughs> so <laughs> that that was that was a strange finding. See, uh, I, I I would but, have thought that the numbers for homosexuals would have been lower because they see, you know, all these movements for pro-gay marriage and all that and think, well, look at this. The, the gays are getting the, the run of the show now. So, mm-hmm. you know, we need to step up our persecution of them. But apparently right. they know themselves well enough to admit that yeah. they well, are I mean, persecuting. So they don't, they don't really think that they're – I mean they, they don't think that they're persecuting. In some sense, I'm, I'm clearly they do, right. but at the same time, like theologically, they don't think they're doing something right. wrong here, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm it's a, a hard bizarre time. statistic. I don't get it. It is quite mind-blowing. I have a hard time understanding where that's coming from. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just I don't think if you put this question to them, you'd get it answered in the affirmative. But what the numbers seem to show is they feel they are uh, white evangelical. Christians feel that they are more discriminated against than Muslims, blacks, Hispanics, Jews, atheists, yeah. everybody other than gays. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because, uh, you know, all those black men are always keeping down whitey. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's, uh, there's quite a, 
a break from reality there. And, um, of course, being atheists, we know that, in fact, atheists are the most persecuted group, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, at least in some measures, you probably could get that. I, I, I think uh, we're not – I don't feel that much persecution blogs, in my everyday life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, According um, to YouTube, everyone hates us. <laughs> yes, yeah. That's right. But I certainly feel that atheists uh receive more discrimination than white evangelical Christians. Yes. I'm I'm uh, confident in saying that. Mm-hmm. And uh maybe this is hard to convince somebody who is not an atheist, mm-hmm. is not a non-believer and perceives, you know, the world as being run by secular humanists or something. Right. What I try to say to such people is, you know, just pretend to be an atheist for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. You know, tell your coworkers that you don't believe in God and see how they will react. Because we are very, we are quite we, hidden amongst the population. There's a lot of atheists who are afraid to even come out of the closet. Mm-hmm. That is the subject of our interview today with Greta Christina. Greta Christina has written a wonderful book. Collecting the experiences of at least dozens of people who have come out as an atheist to their family, to their spouses, to their coworkers and friends. And she's written a kind of instruction manual, I guess you would say, to help people who are making this difficult decision to come out atheist, uh, to navigate that terrain in a thoughtful, careful and confident way. We're thrilled that she's joined us on the show today to talk about the book. Greta Christina, thank you so much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So we have you on to talk about your new book, Coming Out Atheist, How to Do It, How to Help Each Other, and Why. First off, I just wanted to say this is this is a really interesting book. This is not just an, an anthology of coming out stories of deconversion accounts. It's actually more like a manual. Then you bring in discussions of people's personal experience, which I thought was a fantastic approach to covering this subject. There's so much in this book, it's hard to know where to start. But maybe we should start at the beginning with a point you make often, which is Oftentimes, coming out as an atheist is not always as scary as people think. Yeah, well, that's definitely one of the the most common themes that I found when I was doing the research for this book. I read over 400 stories of atheists coming out uh, when I was researching this. And when I started out that research, I really expected to just be deluged with tragedies and horror stories. Mm-hmm. And I certainly did get those. I, I got, you know, any of those is too much. So I got too much of that. But I was surprised that I didn't get as many of those as I'd expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of stories where people said, yeah, it wasn't a great conversation. We had a hard time at first and we struggled and we had some fights and some tears, but now things are okay. And they had expected to be just totally alienated. They'd expected to be totally shunned by their fr- family, by their friends, by their colleagues, whatever. And it's mostly turned out okay. You know, there certainly are some people who mm-hmm. have had some very sad stories who aren't speaking to their families anymore and so on. But but those are the exception. And that really surprised me. And even of the people who said that they had had a very difficult time, almost everybody said that they were still glad that they had done it. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of people said, you know, I really expected this to be hard and it really wasn't. You know, it was not, you know, it it was – 
I expected the tears and the fights and the difficult conversations, and it was really not that big a deal. And of course, what sometimes happens, and this is my favorite kind of story, <laughs> is people come out as an atheist to their family or their friends, and people say, me too. Yeah. You know, people say, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you told me because I'm an atheist too, or I'm whatever kind of non-believer, and... And I've been afraid to tell anybody. It, it's frightening. And, and yeah, we've had those experiences too where we find out, oh my gosh, I've been in a room of non-believers this whole time and didn't even realize it. It's such a frightening thing. But that's really, I think, the value of this book is helping people deal with their fears and preparing them, encouraging them that, you know, the worst case scenario probably won't happen, but preparing them for the situations they will face. So you break it down into many different areas. Family, of course. Many people have to come out to family. What were some of the consistent themes you found around coming out to family? Oh, well, certainly one of the most consistent themes is that it's really important. You know, when I asked – when I started doing the, the research for this book and asked people to tell me their coming out stories, family is overwhelmingly what people wanted to talk about. And it's – I think that this is by far the longest chapter in the book is, is talking about coming out to family. And one of the most consistent themes is that – and there's a lot, but one of the most consistent themes is that coming out to family can be difficult because often families who are religious – they see religion as part of their personal identity and they often see it as part of a family identity. They can see it as part of a cultural identity or a historical identity, a geographical identity. And so when we come out as atheists, we tell them we're not religious. They don't just see it as I don't agree with you about something. It's not ju it's not as simple as saying, well, you're a Republican and I've decided that I'm a Democrat. Uh, it's much more – it often feels much more like a personal rejection, you know, like you're – like we're saying you are wrong and you are bad to be religious. And I think one of the things we need to accept is that – to some extent, there's no way around that. I mean we can make sure to reassure the people that we care about that this isn't a personal rejection. This isn't about you. I just don't agree with, with this. But the reality is that when you say I don't believe in God – there's no way to say that without implying if you do believe yeah. in God, you're mistaken. <laughs> right. You know, it's not like coming out as LGBT where that's yeah. just something that's personally true about you. Um, that being said, though, what one of the common themes that came up, again, from the research that I did for this book, was that I think it's not a good idea to have arguments about whether mm -hmm. you believe in God, at least not during the coming out conversation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, those arguments can actually be very, very valuable. A lot of atheists are atheists because of those arguments. But the coming out conversation is not the time for it because that you're, the people in your life are probably already feeling – a little raw, a little personally rejected, a little hurt that you're rejecting mm -hmm. this family and personal and cultural identity. So you don't need to rub salt in the wounds by saying, I'm an atheist and you should yeah. be too. I love how you handled that in the book. I, I think I, I'm probably going to botch it a little bit, but you said, uh, you know, this is not about convincing them of a point of view. This conversation with a family is that you want acceptance from them and you also want to show them that you accept them still. And uh, uh, which was such a great point. And, and what stands out to me about this book is the, the compassion. This is not about fighting over theological issues. This is about preserving relationships that are worth preserving. And always that sensitivity runs throughout.
Uh, well, thank you. That's certainly what I what I strove for was you know to you know to understand that you know this isn't these conversations aren't about arguments with strangers on the internet. You know these are this is about uh, trying to maintain rela- relationships with the people that you care about. Mm-hmm. Now you uh, talk about various different strategies. You know, not it's coming out is not going to be a one size fits all thing. One of the strategies you mentioned is softening. Softening the ground first. Yeah, softening yeah. the ground first. What are some of the strengths and maybe disadvantages of an approach like that? Again, as you, the first thing I want to say is, as you said, this is not a one-size-fits-all mm-hmm. guide. You know, it's when I, in fact, when I started researching it, that's kind of how I envisioned it. I just envisioned it as like this nice little slim volume <laughs> of directions, you know, like directions on your phone. You do this and then you do this and you do this. Yeah, looking at the size of the book, it didn't turn out. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not that, um, uh, definitely. And... And a lot of the reason for that is that coming out is different for everybody. Different people have different circumstances and different people have just different personalities. So as far as like whether you want to kind of soften the ground first, start dropping hints, you know, say, oh, I'm having some doubts about religion or, you know, I think I might be questioning my faith or I'm, you know, and that kind of thing. You can do that, and a lot of people have said that that's been very successful. Uh, people said that that by the time they did eventually say, "I'm an atheist" or "I'm a non-believer," I don't believe in God anymore. People were kind of okay. That's not news to me. Right. You'd been, you it know, it's not that much of a surprise. Saw that one coming. Saw that one coming, <laughs> and it kind of gets people used to the idea gradually. Yeah. There's a couple of downsides to that. One is that some people are not going to let you get away with just dropping hints. There's a common theme that happens uh, to a lot of people, which is when you start dropping hints, they get freaked out and then they say, what do you mean you're having questions? Are you an atheist? And if you're going to do this off in the ground route, you need to be prepared for that and you need to be prepared for how you're going to respond if they do ask that. And so it's it's a good idea if you think that that'll work and that'll make people be more comfortable with it to soften the ground first. But don't do that unless you're prepared for that ground to collapse. (laughs) Don't do that unless you're prepared to have the real conversation. I remember when I was slowly – I took that same approach when I was slowly um, realizing that I was having uh, difficulty uh, retaining these beliefs. Uh, I would say I'm questioning these things, you know, and you could tell that my my parents in this case were very uncomfortable with just even me saying something as vague as that. But luckily in my case, they didn't really press very hard on the issue. But I feel like if I were in that position, I would – I would largely just say something like, "I just don't know what I believe. I'm 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 going through this, and you know, it's a I'm I'm honestly trying to assess these issues, but you know, a lot of times, you know, as you said, that's that's not going to be good enough. They're going to really want to know where you stand, and it can be very difficult to navigate that. And and very important advice too. You know, you 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 said with that with that strategy. There's the possibility of deception coming in, and you really don't want to lie to anybody. You right, don't want to work yourself into a corner. Yeah. You had this horrifying story of a of a young woman who uh, she had lied that she was still going to church, and her father started researching on the church she she was going to and asking her what was the sermon about Sunday. Oh no! Those yeah. are those are the types of things you don't even think about until you read other people's experience, and uh, it's it's such a great asset for you to have collected all of these experiences for us. Um, what about some other strategies? Uh, you mentioned uh, what seemed odd to me because this so did not match my my style, but you see a lot of parallels in the LGBT community too with this, but the strategy of just pretending like it's not a big deal at all, just 
slipping it into a conversation somewhere. Yeah, and that can be very effective. It depends a little bit on who you're coming out to. Uh, there is actually a whole chapter, not a huge chapter, but there's a chapter in the book on what I call the no big deal strategy, where instead of, you know, sitting people down and saying, I have something very important to tell you, I don't believe in God anymore, I hope like you can understand. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and for the people who you're very close to, and if you think they're going to have a very hard time with it, that something like that probably is a good idea. But for people who you're less close to, just casually acquaintances and, and so on if, if you're going to school or whatever. just It can be very effective to just mention it, to just mention it as if it weren't a big deal, to just, you know, somebody says, you know, oh, you know, what did you think of, you know, some religious thing that's in the news? Oh, well, I'm an atheist and so what I think of that is X. Mm-hmm. Uh, to just, you know, to, you know, wear the T-shirt or whatever, to just not have it be this big production with trumpets. And one of the things that that can do is it can help make atheism seem ordinary. You know, when we do sit down and have the big conversation, I have something very important to tell you now. You know, again, with people who we care about who are going to have a hard time, that makes a certain amount of sense. But it does kind of make it seem like there's something wrong with it Mm -hmm. uh, or like there's – at least like there's something freakish about it. And I think that when we do just drop it into conversation as if it were every day – then that does make it seem just more ordinary. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and and there is, again, there's parallels here. There's a lot of parallels with coming out as LGBT. Uh, I'm bisexual, and so I know a lot about that from my own experience as well as just history. And there's some important differences as well, but certainly that's something that a lot of LGBT people do. Mm -hmm. They don't, you know, they just mention their boyfriend, their girlfriend, you know, Mm -hmm. the fact that they're singing with the gay choir or whatever. Uh, They don't feel a compelling need to announce it with trumpets every single time they mention it. And that does help... I think just make it seem ordinary. Hmm. And it's it's great now. I mean, that's kind of a strategy that works now in that community as there's greater awareness and greater acceptance. And hopefully, I mean, I think I'm seeing a change personally of, of how people relate to atheism. I remember when I used to reveal this 10 years ago, I, it was to gasps and concerned looks. And I just mentioned the other day to a student who asked me uh, what church I went to. I mentioned that I don't and I'm actually an atheist which stunned her a bit because I teach religion classes, <laughs> but it wasn't a big deal. It was, it was, we had a fun conversation after, and those strategies are available. Uh, obviously, with family and close loved ones, and especially partners, it can be more difficult. So you also have a section on specifically dealing with partners and spouses. Uh, yes, and that can be one of the most difficult things, where if you both went into the marriage as religious, then when you you know, if you leave religion, then it can seem like you're breaking the marriage vow in a sense. You know, for a, a lot of times, marriage vows do have religion woven into it, and it can seem like like this really personal betrayal of this promise that you made. Um, and of course, there's a lot of really practical issues in, in a marriage or a relationship mm-hmm. uh, that have to do with religion. You know, are you going to keep going to church or you, whatever religious right. services you go to together? How are, if you have children, how are you going to raise children? Um, and, and, of course, religion has – it reflects our values. And sometimes differences in religion in a relationship can either create – 
differences in values or they can show differences in values right. that that already exist. So this is the, this is a point where I plug somebody else's book. <laughs> um, um, uh, there's a book. It's either out now or it's about to come out by Dale McGowan. It's oh, called – Dale on here. He's yeah. awesome. You should get him on your show to talk about this. Is He's coming out with a book called In Faith and in Doubt and it's specifically about relationships between believers and non-believers, mm-hmm. relationships and marriages. Um, but I do – you know, my chapter is just kind of a piece of that which is how to have the conversation in the first place, you know, and a little bit about how to make these decisions. In fact, I talked with Dale when I was uh, writing this chapter and got a lot of ideas from him. And one of the things that he says is to, again, and it's it's like coming out to your family, make it clear that this isn't personal. Make it clear that this is not a personal rejection. Um, and it can really help to emphasize that the fact that you love them so much, that's why you feel like you need to tell them. That's why you feel like you need to be honest with them. One of the really encouraging notes that you ended that chapter on was that sometimes a resistant spouse at first, you know, who's horrified to hear that their partner is an atheist, sometimes even if they don't change their viewpoint, they might end up liking their partner better in the end. Uh, There was that one married couple you mentioned towards the end. Thought her husband became a better man after after becoming an atheist, and uh, which you could see. I mean, if you're if you're this kind of man, the male is the head of the household and all that garbage. Switching worldviews could be the basis of actually developing a much better, more respectful relationship. Mm-hmm. Some interesting side topics come up from time to time. Stuff people usually wouldn't even think about, like regional differences. Um, what is it like coming out, say, in the Bible Belt? in the heart of fundamentalism, as opposed to coming out in a more progressive city. These are issues that aren't usually discussed, but they really do matter. I'm wondering if you have any reflections to share with us on that. Well, they definitely matter a lot. And it is one of the more important differences that I I saw when I was researching this book, uh, is that, you know, coming out in, I'm a little reluctant to say the Bible Belt, because that makes Mm -hmm. it seem like, you know, it's like you have all of the South versus all of the Northeast. And in fact, when you look at the United States, how religious differences and political differences really break down is by city, you know, cities versus suburbs and rural areas. Um, and almost every state is actually purple. This whole red-blue thing is kind of kind of a myth, kind of mythology. But that's still a regional difference. You know, it's like, you know, if you live in Atlanta, Georgia, versus you live in, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, Georgia. And definitely one of the more uh, important things about coming out in a conservative area is that in conservative areas, religion is often very tightly woven with the social life and the political life and the economic life. And and if you are leaving religion, you're going to be leaving a lot of that. Yeah. So if you're living in a conservative region, it can be really important to find atheist community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that's important for everybody, uh, but especially if you're li- living someplace where you're really going to be very isolated. And a lot of people who live in religious communities have said that they've tended to be less confrontational. You know, they tend to be less about wanting to argue with people about religion. Or if they do, they save it for the internet. Um, (laughs) um, Now, there's uh, interesting challenges in coming out in liberal or progressive communities, which is that it can be hard to find that support. Um, You know, a lot of times, and this has surprised me a lot, but I travel around the country uh, a lot to do speaking and stuff. And what I found is that atheist communities are often much stronger 
in conservative places yeah. because that's where people really need it. Yeah. Um, but that means that if you're coming out in some place like New York City or San Francisco where there is atheist community but it's not quite as thriving, if you are having a hard time, if you're having a hard time with your family or you're having a hard time at your job or something and you really do want community, it can be a little harder to find. Uh, so that's – and that's a – and the other thing is that in liberal and progressive communities – Often the religion is new age or mm -hmm. it's very sort of progressive. It's very kumbaya, handholdy, interfaith. And yet those people can be very hostile yeah. to atheists. And that's something that a lot of people in progressive areas don't necessarily expect and, mm -hmm. and surprises when they come out. This so mirrors our own personal experience in, in our local group, CFI Michigan. We wanted to be visible members of the community. We wanted to be taking part in social action around the area and making common cause with religious people who share our values. So we plugged into the interfaith community thinking we'll be welcomed with open arms. But as you point out in the book, the whole premise of interfaith is respecting everybody's beliefs and we're all seeing some other aspect of God. Atheism can be surprisingly threatening to that group. You also devote a, a portion to, you know, groups that are already marginalized, people of color, women, LGBT issues, and their unique experiences coming out of religion. What are some of the challenges they face? Well, of course, it depends on which marginalized group right. you're talking about. And, and of course, those experiences are very diverse. Uh, but to try to sum it up in a nutshell, you have kind of a couple of different problems. One is that if you're coming out, if you're African-American, if you're Hispanic, um, even if you're lesbian, gay, bisexual, or trans, often religion can be very tightly woven in those communities. I know that surprises some people that LGBT world can be very religious, but often it can be. And certainly the African-American community can be very religious. Latino, Hispanic communities can be very religious. You know, people, you know, families who are of Middle Eastern descent can be very religious. And that's especially true when if you're mar a marginalized group and religion is a big part of both your cultural identity as a marginalized group and it's also just how you organize. It's how you pro provide social support in the face mm -hmm. of oppression. And so it can be very extra difficult if you're uh, coming out in – and you're part of those groups because it you're first of all you're losing that support that people in those groups get from right. their religion which was already a small group which is already a small <laughs> group and you're already marginalized so you're now facing this extra marginalization yeah. you know it's like you're African American and you're an atheist so people hate you for two reasons and and then of course that fe feeling of rejection that people have about you leaving religion that can be really amplified if their religion is very important to them because it's part of their marginalization so you have all that and then you add to that the fact that the atheist community is not always that great on these issues. Yeah. You know, the atheist community and the atheist movement is not always the most feminist. It's not always the most anti-racist. Um, we're pretty good on lesbian, gay, bi issues but we're not gr great on trans issues. You're, you're like – so you're leaving your supportive community that supports you about everything other than the fact that you don't believe in God. And then you come into this community that supports you about not believing in God, but they're not always supportive about, about your other marginalization, about race, about gender, about sexual identity. And it's not that there's often like this hugely overt, you know, it's not like people are in the K, like you're going to join the atheist group and it turns out that they're a cover group for the KKK or something like that. <laughs> it, it's not that. But, you know, we have unconscious 
bias. It has yeah. been very well documented. If you're skeptics, you shouldn't be doubtful about <laughs> yeah. this because there's tons of research on yeah. this. Um, and, you know, we have these unconscious biases. And until we start dealing with people who are from these marginalized groups, we often don't become con- – we're not conscious of them. And then, of course, when people try to do consciousness raising, there's often yeah. resistance. Yeah. And, and, you know, and a unique problem in our group is I, I, I think sometimes is we, we really think we don't have an issue on these on these things. We think of ourselves as, hey – I already left religion. I already got over this bigotry. We think we don't have much left to examine in ourselves. And boy, does that come out when some of these oppressed groups take membership. We have to sort through these issues. Yeah. I'm glad that you and others, and you've consistently, this has been a theme on your blog, on Free Thought blogs, and I'm, I'm glad that we're finally really having this discussion on a wide scale. Uh, in our movement. Yeah, I am too. And people, you know, often complain that it's divisive. And yes, it is divisive. These are hard conversations to have. And it's hard to really accept that you've been discriminated against people without Mm -hmm. meaning to for your whole life. That's that's a hard thing to accept. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we're not going to move forward as a movement if we don't accept that. You know, we can't make ourselves better if we don't accept the ways that we're failing. And I am seeing a lot of progress. I mean, it's like these conversations can be very divisive and they can be very upsetting. But I'm also seeing a lot more diversity Mm -hmm. in in local groups, um, on the internet, uh, at, you know, conferences and other big events. I'm seeing a lot more diversity than I used to. To. And so it is. So it is making a difference. A decade ago, it was white, old white guys, mostly everywhere you saw. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it is still predominantly white, from what I've seen anecdotally. But the gender split is getting much more equal, and uh, it's encouraging to see so much change happening so fast. Maybe to wrap things up, what about people who say, "I don't want to come out. This is this is stressful. I'm scared of how people will react." Why come out in the first place? Uh, well, the first thing I want to say is I have compassion for that. Mm-hmm. It, 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 is, it can be difficult to come out. Um, you know, if you're stressed out, I'm not going to say, oh, you shouldn't be. That's ridiculous. Um, what I will say is that overwhelmingly atheists who have come out of the closet say that they're glad that they did it. Again, I read over 400 coming out atheist stories uh, when I was researching this book. Out of those over 400 stories, literally one person said they regretted it. Um, everybody else said that they were glad they did it. They sometimes had regrets about how how they did it, you know, about the timing, who they came out to first, their tone and so on. And that's a lot of what this book is about, is learning from other atheists about that, the how, you know. Mm-hmm. But but overwhelmingly, atheists say that they're glad they did it. And, and yes, being out can be stressful, but being in the closet is stressful as mm-hmm. well. You know, you're always having to bite your tongue. Uh, you're, when people say bigoted things about atheism, you have to just stay quiet and take it in. You can't push back against it. Um, you're having to lie about something that's really important to people who really care about you. And you always have to worry, what if somebody finds out? If you're out to anybody, if you're out to like a handful of friends, if you have an anonymous presence on the internet, you have to worry about what happens if somebody finds out. Mm -hmm. So, and this has been, this is very much reflected in LGBT community as well. Even when coming out is hard, even when it means facing bigotry, it it's easier. You can just relax. You don't have to worry about – you don't have to worry about what happens if people find out because people know. Um, 
And coming out is how we find each other. If you're, it's how we create communities. And it's how we push back against the bigotry. I mean, yes, there's bigotry against atheists. And when we come out, we face that. But every time we do that, we chip away at it. And every person that we come out to, uh, it chips away at that little bit of bigotry a little bit more. You know, yeah. we're seeing le- – we're already – polls and stuff are showing less anti-atheist bigotry than there was even five or ten years ago. And it's the fact that we're coming out that's making that difference. So as stressful as it is, um, overwhelmingly uh, atheists say that it makes their lives better and it makes lives better for other atheists. It makes it easier for other atheists to come out. It makes it easier for us to build community. It makes us easier to create a political movement that pushes back against some of the the policies uh, that harm us. So uh, I, I totally have compassion for people who say that they're having a hard time with it. Um, and certainly, if you think it's really going to mess up your life, if it's you know you're going to get kicked out of your home, you're going to your parents are going to cut off your tuition, you're going to lose your job, then definitely be, you get to be careful. You get to decide this is not a good time for me. But overwhelmingly, uh, atheists who have come out uh, say that their lives are better for it. So that's the main encouragement that I would give. So listeners out there who are still in the closet over their atheism. Luckily, you're not alone, and you have the collective wisdom of many who have gone before you and come out about their atheism, and you can get that in a handy volume by Greta Christina, Coming Out Atheist. Um, do you have a preferred vendor for uh, for people to buy this book from? Or? Um, not really. Uh, the full title, by the way, is Coming Out Atheist, How to Do It, How to Help Each Other, and Why. The book is available in print. It's available in ebook for people who mm-hmm. prefer that. It's available in audiobook. Um, I did the recording for the audiobook if people are enjoying the dulcet sounds of my voice. Um, <laughs> well, stone tablet? Stone, stone tablet, yeah. absolutely. Chiseled into stone tablets. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we're going to have a link to, to uh, where you can purchase Greta Christina's book and a link to her blog at our website, doubtcast.org. Greta Christina, thank you so much for what you're doing to help this movement and for writing this excellent book. And thank you for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the work you're doing here at, at their podcast and at CFI. Thank you. Last time in Polyatheism, we looked at the origin of the Celtic hero Cuchulain, including his miraculously complicated birth and the petricide. I believe that's the word for killing a dog at any rate. Petricide? Petricide. I thought that would be like killing a rock. Oh, you might be right. See, it's those damn Latinate words. Anyway, that led uh, little Satanta to become the Hound of Cuchulain or Cuchulain. Today, we ease forward into that time when a young man's thoughts turn to other things. Cahoulin grew up tall, dark, at least as dark as an Irishman gets, and handsome, and the women around him took notice. But none found favor with him until he happened upon Emmer, the daughter of Forgal. Oh. Yeah, she beyond all others possessed the six gifts of womanhood, namely. <laughs> oh, I can't oh, wait. Boy. I can't wait to- <laughs> oh boy! Drum roll, please. <laughs> the gift of wisdom. Oh, hey. The gift of beauty. Oh. The gift of voice. Mm. The gift of sweet speech. Mm. Mm-hmm. The gift of needlework. There we go. And. <laughs> The gift of chastity. Uh, yeah, I. you know, mm-hmm. when we started off with wisdom, I'm like, you know what? Yeah. 
Maybe I shouldn't be so cynical. It's almost like I ordered them that way. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. And I'll go ahead and apologize in advance for part three of this story because it's going to get way worse. Oh, um, great. Yeah. Immer could not yet marry Kahulin because her older sister had to get married first. Like uh, Ten Things I Hate About You, or what's that Shakespeare play it's based on? And more crucially, Cahoulin's deeds were, quote, still to do, as Emir puts it. Uh, so until he goes off and slays his hundreds, he isn't worthy of her. And there's also boob jokes in the middle there, uh, but uh, we'll skip that. So off Cahoulin heads into the land of shadows to get his hero training from a warrior woman named Skatha. Along the way, he faces various trials, including passing the Plain of Ill Luck, where he receives help from his godly father, Lu, in the form of a wheel of light that he rolls in front of him and sparks shoot out. Oh, cool. Yeah, right? When he finally arrives at Scotha's doorstep, he finds a bunch of his fellow Irishmen, including his best friend, uh, Ferdia, hanging out. Drunk, I'm assuming. Well, well... They're Irish, right? Mm. Eating potatoes, having freckles. By the way, I'm ethnically Irish. I'm allowed to say yeah, that. It's, it, totally, it's fine. They're separated from Scotha's home by the Bridge of Leaps, under which is boiling water filled with monsters. Mmm, boiled monsters. <laughs> <laughs> Irish cuisine. <laughs> uh, none of the other men have been able to cross the Bridge of Leaps because crossing the Bridge of Leaps requires... Leaping. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and they tend to be rather short. Yeah. And it is one of the two final lessons that Scotha teaches them. It's and they're hard to leap when drunk. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and Well, and they have to click their heels in the air when they oh, do geez. it. So, you know. Um, uh, none of them have made it that far in their training. So Cahoulin shows up, and like Batman in that weird plot device of, of a pit in The Dark Knight Rises... He tries to cross the Bridge of Leaps by leaping, um, but fails three times before, much to the astonishment of the jeering Irish warriors, he passes it and lands at Scotha's front door. Impressed by his pluck, Scotha takes Cahoulin on as her Padawan and teaches him lessons she has shared with no other warrior. Oh including something called the Gay Bulge. Bulge? Eh, pretty close. <laughs> Which is some kind of spear that you toss with your foot, and it rips out all of your opponent's innards. Oh. Hmm. It's a pretty good tool to have in, in your belt. In the year that uh, Cahoulin studied with Scatha, it just so happened that she made war against the mightiest of all warrior women, Princess Aifa. After much heroicness, Cahoulin finally faces Aifa in single combat, and just as she was about to destroy him, she shattered his sword, she's about to kill him, he pulls something equivalent to, hey, look over there! <laughs> and when she turned around, he grabbed her and slung her over his shoulder. Oldest trick in the book. Uh, that's Scottish. <laughs> so he carries her over his shoulder back to Scotha, and they agree to peace, but it's ultimately Cahoulin who got a peace and blew a baby into Princess Aifa. And then, like a real man, he left her. But, oh, wow. before... Yeah, guys, wow. guys, Celtic myth, 
Uh, there are some really powerful uh, women, um, and and we're not gonna run into. I mean, they're warrior women. They're they're tough, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so just as he's about to leave, he gives her a gold ring and tells her that when her son is big enough to wear that ring, uh, he has to be sent out to find his father. However, he also gave him two geish. Uh, to pass on to her son, Geish, Geisha, if there's more than one, show up in a lot of Irish traditions. So if you're not familiar, it's essentially a magic rule, like some kind of binding spell that almost always leads to ironic and tragic consequences. Mm-hmm. We'll see more of them in part three as well. The two given to Cahulan's unborn son are that he is never to tell anyone who he is and that he may never back down from a fight. I can't possibly foresee how this could end tragically. Yeah. <laughs> so Cahulin heads out after spending a year and a day under Scotha's tutelage and goes back to win the hand of Emir. Along the way, he slays some badass magical warriors, and then after using the hero's salmon leap, which is one of his special moves. Ooh, that's he, like a combo move. Up, yeah. up, down, down, left, right, left, right. <laughs> did you the just, hero salmon move. Did you just acquire all weapons on Contra? Yeah, 30, 30 extra, extra lives, lives on Contra. Fuck, yeah. <laughs> but I uh, didn't do B-A-B-A select start. No, you missed that. So, uh, then he, <laughs> he kills a bunch of Emir's father's men and kind of leads to the death of Emir's father himself because he tries to leap over a wall and then lands on the other side dead somehow. Oh. Uh, and then she marries him because that's what you do when someone kills off most of your family and loved ones. Um, and from that point on, the two are never parted again. Meanwhile, oh. Princess Afa gives birth to a son named Kanla. Kanla, once he's old enough to wear the ring of Cahulin, is sent off to find his father. As he approaches, he's met by various people who ask him who he is. And because of the geish, he cannot say who he is, of course. And because he won't identify himself, he gets challenged to fights. And because Uh he can't back down, he ends up having to kill assorted Irish warriors. Predictably, when some stranger is killing Irish warriors, the king calls in his greatest warrior, Cahulin. Now... You might want to give Cahulin the benefit of the doubt here and say, how could he possibly know that this stranger who won't identify himself and never backs down from a fight is his son? But Emmer, his wife, manages to put two and two together, and she tries to stop Cahulin from going after this young man, saying, surely this is your son to whom you yourself gave the geisha that keep leading this boy into mortal combat. And Cahulin's response is, well, even if it is my son, Conla, uh, I'm going to kill him for the trouble he's causing. And no, folks, no matter how hard you grab a myth and try to shake it, it will not cede to common sense. Believe me, (laughs) I've tried. So Cahulin meets the young man, asks him to identify himself, and when the young man refuses, Cahulin challenges him to a battle. They fight, and it is... All credit to Kanla, uh, the most difficult single combat Kahulin has in his life. But in the end, he uses the one trick only he was ever taught, the gay bulk, in which he guts his own son. Wow. Only then does Kahulin see the ring on the boy's finger and realize what everyone else had already worked out. Oh, God, just listen to your wife. Uh. Right? 
in order to make it up to his dying son, as the boy bleeds out, Cahulin presents him to the noblemen of Ulster, and they offer condolences and congratulations on a fight well fought. <laughs> I'm just picturing him with his guts hanging out. Hey, thanks, guys. High five. And, uh, and then he dies. Cahulin's uh, only begotten son. He's not much of a father, and uh, he's also not very much of a husband either. While married to Emir, he falls in love with a woman named Fand, but he gets all pouty because Fand is already married to a god. Their brief love affair ends with Cahulan being so heartbroken that he goes off and lives in the mountains for a while. With his gay bulk. <laughs> but to make it all better... Uh, the king gives Cahulin and his rightfully upset wife, Emmer, a potion that makes them both forget the whole unhappy incident. <laughs> and thus the Irish invented roofies. <laughs> oh the key to any successful marriage is drug-induced amnesia. <laughs> and thus endeth part two of our look at the Celtic hero Cahulin. Next time, what is the curse of Mocha? What makes a man? How best can one avoid poetic satire? And how does an otter figure into the death of a hero? Tune in next time, same Cahoolan time, same Cahoolan channel. I am on the edge of my seat. Uh-huh. <laughs> now let's turn to a stranger than fiction. Christian swingers like sharing Bible verses, comma, sex partners. <laughs> uh, uh, boy. Um, <laughs> this is from uh, the New York Post, and uh, there's a website that you can check out if you're interested in being a Christian swinger. Yeah. Uh, Fitnesswingers.com. By the way, we've, we've seen the Christian swinger stuff on the internet before, mm. always in parody form. Right. This is the real deal. This is legit. Or at least it appears to be. I it tried sure to, looks like it. I don't, you know. I tried to get on fitnesswingers.com, which is their website here at yeah. the radio station, and we have new firewall that blocks yeah, it as pornography. Yeah, it's blocked on mine, too. So, um, this sorry, is... folks. I would love to tell you what's on um, fitnesswingers.com. I'm but... not so sure I would love it. Uh, this <laughs> picture of these Christian swingers, they, they look just a little scary to me. Yeah, because they, they all met at uh, bodybuilding competitions. Yeah, they really look like they could do some damage. So they've got a lot of weird stuff going on here. Yeah. They are, are, are Christian bodybuilders who are also swingers and started a website for like-minded Christians yeah. to hook up with each other. Do you have to article, also be a bodybuilder? It, well, the article says, yeah. actually, that uh, they started their website because they were, quote, uh, sick of finding swingers online who couldn't meet their standards. Their fitness standards. Uh, yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I'm, I'm not so sure these people should be ones to judge on appearance alone. But, right. But uh, nevertheless. One, uh, of them has a, one of the men has a pink mohawk in the pictures. Unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah. And he, no, he's like that's a 50 not, something. That's not guy. very Christian. No, no, no. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they uh, apparently they um, got into the swinging lifestyle when a couple at Home Depot 
just a day in the life in Florida. Um, <laughs> That's all you need. Couple sir. at Home Depot just comes up to them and just asks them flat out, "Do they want to swing?" And uh, the the wife of the couple thought they meant swing, swing dancing, dancing. Yeah. like. Or I just bought this swing from the hardware department. Right. Yeah. yeah. And they <laughs> had to actually go home and look it up online. They said, and they said, "Ooh, it sounds." She oh, says, "Afterwards, know? we went home and looked it up online, and it sounds exciting." Yeah. I certainly have nothing against swingers. The, I find it interesting that they would try to view this as an explicitly Christian thing right. that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, their rationale is... Um, they like to be unequally yoked, yo. <laughs> <laughs> Christy, the the wife of the couple, says, uh, I, I don't think God would be mad at what we're doing. At first, I was conflicted, but the more we looked at it, the more it made sense to us. God put us on Earth to breed and to enjoy each other. Which so well, presumably they're not they having more than multiply. They are not yeah. actually breeding. Yeah, the, well, that's, uh, you know. So, well, but she just takes that as a as a general rule that hey, have sex. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I feel God is, is always good. with me, and He has put us here for a reason, and apparently that reason is to. Preach the gospel of, of Christian swinging. It is an interesting interpretation. It sure would make evening church more interesting. You get to evening church and it's like a key party. Home Bible just, study. Just, uh, when they cut around the collection yeah. thing, they just toss <laughs> the keys in. And, just uh, another check mark on the number of, of uh, moral issues that you can find Christians on both sides of mm-hmm. all the way down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Moral uh, confusion because the, that's not evidence against scripture. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was trying to think other than the the whole don't covet thy neighbor's wife. Well, they're not sure, coveting. I mean, they're having. Yeah, <laughs> so that's true. And the only other thing I could think of is there is a biblical verse in the Old Testament that prohibits having a three-way with your wife and her sister. You know, Man, such roots. When they say that the Bible doesn't explicitly <laughs> condemn swinging, they might have a case. Yeah, I don't, you know. Sure. Truly, the article is best for the comments section. Uh, <laughs> please, as you can please indulge us. Uh, just, just a couple of my favorite winners. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Ugh, ugh, ugh. Or, or there's also, uh, behold the magical powers of alcohol. <laughs> or my personal favorite, geez, the heterosexual lifestyle is so immoral. <laughs> Love it. Uh, so great. Uh, so wonderful. And uh, I, let's end it there, shall we? Uh, that's going to do it for us this time. Until next time, you can check out doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts uh, for our blog where you can comment on this episode and other episodes or make a donation uh, through our PayPal, which we mentioned that on the last episode and thus came a flood of uh, people yeah. Did they? making donations. Yeah, yeah oh, we wow. got a Thank lot you, everybody. And the I haven't been checking the email. Out there who are... You know, sending five, ten bucks. I I appreciate that so much because those are people who. You have no idea. um, It means a lot. And uh, it means that you appreciate what we're trying to do here and it helps us keep doing it. I figured out, I figured out the other day that uh, if we got a dollar for every 
for every download yeah. that we've had on the show, we would be millionaires actually at this point. All right, so let's make that the goal. <laughs> uh, of course, we'd have a lot less downloads if we were charging a dollar. Well, so, um, but, but you know what? Let's let's work yeah. this idea and everyone. Who's I mean, download for, yeah. an episode. If you make us millionaires, yeah. we'll do this show every day, guys. Yeah, absolutely, I, it, every day. If you if you can get us those millions of dollars. Here's our promise, and and we'll leave Luke out of it because he's financially <laughs> he's, stable enough. He's Let's, lazy. Uh, yeah. All we need is another crazy millionaire in our lives. <laughs> yes. So please visit makereasonabledoubtsmillionaires.com. <laughs> we will do this show day in and day out. If you make us each millionaires, we will um, – We'll take care of you, folks. Or just the three of us, even yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. Just, I mean, Luke's Luke, cool. Luke's all right. He's ten years. Whatever. Fine. He's yeah. doing all right. His <laughs> cats are fed. Uh, I got kids that need college, or at least a trade school at some point. Anyway, um, you can also reach us via email at doubtcast at gmail with your comments, questions, challenges, and so forth. Um, check out our videos on youtube.com slash doubtcast, or stalk us on Facebook and Twitter. And we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.